I next met with Dr. Fox, and to begin, I presented a patient from the practice of Dr. Joan Padovas. 85-year-old, always a good beginning. <laughs> Fully functioning woman, no medical treatment, with a small ERPR, HER2-positive tumor with two negative sentinel nodes. So getting into this issue of the older patient, mm-hmm. the patient in their 80s, mm-hmm. adjuvant therapy, and risk of competing mortality. How do you sort of think through these kinds of cases? Yeah, well, thankfully, you know, we confront these relatively infrequently, but, you know, it always seems like there are more and more of them appearing all the time. And I think the first assumption we have to make is that this is a cancer which may very well have a bad natural history. And my own feeling is that a patient, a good performance status patient with no competing medical problems who has a breast cancer which is of a greater risk than we might have thought some years ago should be afforded the best therapy. I don't think age, per se, should be perceived as a contraindication to chemotherapy, absolutely, in the absence of other medical conditions. So our approach to these patients has been to offer them everything, and everything meaning a course of chemotherapy with trastuzumab and appropriate hormonal therapy. Now, the issue becomes, what is an appropriate chemotherapy for an 85-year-old? I don't know that I know the answer to that, nor do I know that I've treated anybody over the age of 82. But I always felt that the HERA trial gave us permission, if you will, to use whatever chemotherapy we felt appropriate. And my inclination was always to consider a regimen like CMF with growth factor support given in an all-IV fashion to be possibly more appropriate and less noxious for a patient of this age. And, of course, the HERO trial allowed a lot of different kinds of chemo, and then after the chemo was over, gave the trastuzumab. Right, and whether one gives the chemotherapy concurrently or sequentially is, at the moment, an unanswerable question. I think clinical practice has gravitated towards concurrent therapy, and I would have no misgivings with giving a woman like this concurrent chemotherapy with trastuzumab, even though HERO didn't do it exactly that way, because I suspect it probably won't matter a great deal. So I would have no misgivings about treating this patient with appropriate chemotherapy and immunotherapy and hormonal therapy. What about the selection of hormonal therapy in this patient and in general where we are with hormonal therapy, not just in the postmenopausal patient, with the premenopausal patient? Well, if we start with postmenopausal patients first, I think the answers are a little bit clearer. If we again take the philosophy that we're going to afford the patient the best therapy, then I think aromatase inhibitor therapy has proven itself repeatedly to be superior to tamoxifen. The superiority is modest. The improvement in survival is quite possibly statistically negligible. But I'm not always sure that survival should always be our primary consideration in justifying one therapy versus another when it comes to hormonal therapy. Here's my favorite new trick question. You're sitting down with a patient, you say, postmenopausal patient, you say, I think you should take this aromatase inhibitor. And she says, is this going to change my survival at all? And I think the honest answer at this moment has to be no, it will not. That's why it's a trick question. Yeah. No, because I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Because I think what the patient's asking is compared to nothing. Oh, I see. I see. I think that's what right. patients are okay. thinking, don't you? Right. Yes. Well, you know what? We already think one step beyond that, so we don't answer the question correctly. Yeah, that, you see what I'm saying? Yes, that, that, absolutely. And it actually ties into something even more subtle, which is people start walking around thinking that AIs don't affect survival. Right. And they do, because they're at least as good as tamoxifen. Sure. And we should be mindful of the fact that it will improve her survival, but 
it may not improve it relative to her therapeutic alternative, which up until a few years ago would have been tamoxifen. And I guess the other thing is now if you talk about an 85-year-old, even whether it's tamoxifen or an AI, just statistically, how's it going to play out, you know, adjuvant online and all that? I'm sure that if you acted as an actuary in a case like this, you couldn't justify the aromatase inhibitor on the basis of survival. But I think the point that needs to be emphasized is that the advantage of an aromatase inhibitor is to lower the risk of a variety of undesirable outcomes. And having an in-breast recurrence, having a contralateral breast cancer, having metastatic breast cancer, these are all undesirable things for a patient to have to endure. Whether it causes her to die or not almost becomes immaterial because it's one less aggravation she has to deal with. And if the percentages are small, then I think the AI is justified. In an 85-year-old, you know, it may very well be that cost issues are relevant. And if cost issues are prohibitive for the patient, then I think tamoxifen is a default, less expensive alternative. And I have had to do that more often than I like to admit. And then finally, an 85-year-old with severely compromised bone health and who has a fall risk. In that sort of circumstance, the justification for an aromatase inhibitor, I think, begins to wear a little thin. And for patients who are in the category of being at high risk for osteoporotic fracture for a variety of factors other than simple low bone density, tamoxifen is also, to me, a suitable alternative to an AI. What do you think about the issue of adherence in taking oral hormonal therapy? There have been papers out there that question whether or not patients are really taking their medications. Is that a concern? Do you ask your patients about it? Do you think the money is part of it, the cost is part of this? I think there's an inherent reluctance in human behavior among many patients to take medication. And that coupled with their frequent desire to please the physician, I think we're often misled. Conversely, we don't press the issue hard enough in our clinical practice. The most staggering piece of information I've seen in this regard was when Steve Jones presented the team trial in San Antonio in 2008, and when they actually enumerated in an open-label trial the percentage of patients at two and a half years who weren't taking their medicine. And it was 30% for the tamoxifen arm and somewhere in the 20% to 30% range for exemestane. That's a staggering number. And you couple that with the study Ann Partridge presented also in San Antonio probably about two years ago where prescription filling of patients in a variety of third-party pairs was staggeringly decreased after one year and after two years. And it seemed that a large minority of patients were no longer even filling their prescriptions. We haven't developed a reliable mechanism for ensuring adherence in our clinic, other than our you know, relatively casual day-to-day encouragement. I see it as a big, big problem. What did you think about the paper by Cusick in the Lancet Oncology looking at patients in the ATAC study showing that patients, not only who got tamoxifen, but also anastrozole who had vasomotor symptoms or arthralgias had fewer breast cancer recurrences. Based on the sheer number of patients that they evaluated, I thought it was a fascinating piece of work. They identified all the patients who claimed to have no vasomotor or musculoskeletal symptoms at the time of randomization, and that turned out to be about 90% of the population. That almost seems a little bit hard to believe. The paper was based on their self-reported vasomotor or musculoskeletal symptoms at the first three-month visit. That was the only data point where that the presence or absence of that toxicity was recorded. 
the percentage of patients who had those symptoms was, I think, appropriate to our clinical perception. It was about a third. And the patients who had the symptoms had a reduction in the risk of recurrence out to around seven to eight years of follow-up. The hazard rates were substantial. The hazard rates were about 0.84 down to 0.6 based on the symptom being sought. So it almost seems to be an undeniable phenomenon. Now, the immediate cynical reaction would be, well, this is a reflection of patients taking or not taking their medicine. Of course, the patients had a higher recurrence rate when they had no side effects because they actually weren't taking the stuff. But the paper also claims a reported adherence rate that is close to 90%. So that probably doesn't factor into the equation a great deal. That probably is kind of believable if it's just the three months. I think so. I think our counseling of patients is that if these toxicities are going to appear... They're going to appear relatively quickly, and a three-month interval is a reliable interval to assess for the presence or absence of those side effects. The discouraging thing, of course, is to ponder what to do with those who don't get the side effects because the mistaken perception is that they're deriving no benefit. Of course, we can't draw that conclusion. We can only draw the conclusion that they're deriving maybe a little bit less benefit, but that is not a justification for stopping their medicine. And the patients who are having the symptoms, of course, I guess now we can encourage them to press on because, you know, having hot flashes and joint pain apparently is therapeutically a good thing. I thought it was a fascinating paper. It involved thousands of people, so it wasn't a casual observation. And it also kind of ties in with other concepts, like, for example, the rash when you use EGFR inhibitors, colon cancer, et cetera, where it seems like they get more benefit question mark, do the people receiving bevacizumab, you know, with hypertension, do they get more benefits? So I guess the theory, the idea behind it sort of makes sense. I think it does. I think it's probably far more complex than any of us like to think. There's a movement in some circles to look for the presence of functioning metabolic enzymes like CYP2D6 to declare the potential worth or lack of worth of tamoxifen. I think that's a little bit of a slippery slope. It makes a couple of assumptions and it makes a couple of contingencies that I don't think we're well prepared for. Uh, I think it assumes that CYP2D6, it may be the principal metabolizer of tamoxifen, but it certainly can't be the only one. And of course, then it begs the question of if your patient is a poor metabolizer, is there truly a legitimate therapeutic alternative? It's been interesting. When I've brought this CUSIC paper up to investigators, Actually, the people like you are kind of in the minority. A lot of people push back and they go, it's only one study, it's retrospective, you know, and they just, you know, you're going to try to make these poor women suffer. And, you know, it's just a piece of information. When I first saw it, I said, wow, that is really cool. Well, I think for all the flaws in looking at something retrospectively, asking a question in retrospect is, quote unquote, cardinal sin of biostatistics. But On the other hand, it did involve a question that was posed to not a few dozen women, but thousands. And the hazard rates for recurrence were well beyond the boundaries of statistical significance. So I think it's provocative and food for thought and won't change the way we practice, but may give us an opportunity to change the way we counsel patients who are discouraged. I think the other thing that we can't overlook is that the natural history of many of these symptoms is not constant. And in clinical practice these symptoms do tend to dissipate with time. What about endocrine therapy for the premenopausal or perimenopausal woman? There's been a lot of debate and controversy about that. Can you kind of overview where we are right now? Well, I think we have to look at philosophical differences that are international first. I think in the United States, 
many oncologists will still adhere to the assumption that the standard of care for endocrine therapy in a premenopausal woman remains tamoxifen. And there is still not proof that any other maneuver is better than tamoxifen. I think it's easy to assume that the combination of ovarian ablation and tamoxifen is never going to prove to be inferior, but the issue is whether it will ever prove to be superior. If that clinical trial, the soft trial, can be completed, and until that trial is completed, I've personally been disinclined to give patients ovarian ablation therapy simply because of the consequences of that should not be taken lightly, whether it's temporary or permanent. It has not been our general practice at the University of Pennsylvania to recommend ovarian ablation therapy as part of a standard hormonal strategy for a very young patient. I do acknowledge there are many, many people who feel otherwise. Although some people might say, well, you just do ovarian ablation in a different way by giving chemo. Most of these women are going to get chemo. A lot of the ones who get chemo are going to stop menstruating. And how do you deal with that patient? Do you consider her postmenopausal? Do you have to look at blood work? You know, what do you do with those women? I think the right thing to do is to first acknowledge that chemotherapy probably has some therapeutic benefit by virtue of it producing a menopausal state. But I think that if that were the only means by which chemotherapy were effective, then randomized comparisons between chemotherapy and ovarian ablation, of which there have been several, would always show chemotherapy to be inferior because chemotherapy doesn't produce amenorrhea in every patient. All those clinical trials have shown that those therapies are essentially equivalent with very few exceptions. The point being that there is some therapeutic benefit to cytotoxic chemotherapy beyond its induction of menopause. The second part is I think that we have to take a critical look at the natural history of chemotherapy-induced menopause and be mindful of its reversibility. I think the analysis that Sandy Swain presented in San Antonio was by far the largest examination of the natural history of amenorrhea in women receiving chemotherapy. And I think the message that needed to be taken away from that was that in a young person, someone under the age of 40, there is a trickle of reversibility. There, there is the resumption of menstrual function in women that is a constant and didn't plateau at three years. And what I take away from that is that if a premenopausal woman becomes amenorrheic from chemotherapy, which she often does, she is not by definition a proper candidate for aromatase inhibitor therapy, simply because upon resumption of ovarian function, which occurs with increasing likelihood with a younger age, the aromatase inhibitor, which you have prescribed, will suddenly become of no value. So just to maybe put this in practical perspective, let's talk about a woman in her 40s mm -hmm. who gets chemotherapy, immediately stops menstruating. Let's say you do some blood work and she has a postmenopausal profile, but you decide to go ahead and give her tamoxifen. You wait two years, still hasn't had a period, still postmenopausal, still keep the tamoxifen going? I think the correct thing to do is to continue tamoxifen therapy. Ian Smith wrote a paper a few years ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology demonstrating that the number of women under those circumstances who are given aromatase inhibitors will resume menstruating up to one-fourth of the time. And in our own practice, if we go back to, say, 2003 and 2004, we were inclined many times to make the switch from tamoxifen to aromatase inhibitors under the circumstances that you describe, only to find that fully one-third of the patients in whom we did that resumed menstrual periods and had ovarian function and should have been maintained on tamoxifen in the first place. So I think the correct thing to do 
is to use tamoxifen for the requisite period of time and I think be very, very hesitant about switching. So the patient has a node-positive tumor. She gets to year five, still on tamoxifen. A, would you keep the tamoxifen going? Let's say she had five positive nodes. B, would you, again, assuming still no menses and postmenopausal profile, consider an AI at that point? I would feel much more comfortable with it at that point. You, I think, have little to lose by prescribing it at that point. At five years, the likelihood that she'll recover ovarian function, I think, diminishes significantly, although I can't prove that based on an abundance of data. And I think there's little to lose by prescribing an aromatase inhibitor at that point. It's got therapeutic benefit that is without question. The likelihood that she'll recover ovarian function and render the drug ineffective is very low. Her risk of recurrence at five years is still, I think, substantial with five positive nodes. I would have no misgivings about doing that. In fact, in patients at the highest risk of recurrence, you know, arbitrarily setting the bar at 10 positive nodes or higher, who complete five years of tamoxifen and have continued to menstruate, realizing the enormous recurrence risk that patient has, I have on occasion instituted ovarian suppression therapy at that point and prescribed an aromatase inhibitor as part of a sequential therapy for what would be a total of 10 years. Jeez, I thought you were going to say you are going to keep the tamoxifen going beyond five years. I think if you're old enough to have practiced in the 1980s and remember the days when tamoxifen was prescribed ad infinitum, I think we remember how much we recoiled in the early 1990s when we found out that it was probably not a very smart thing to have done. And so in the United States, of course, it became sort of um, anathema to prescribe tamoxifen for more than five years based on what the NSABP showed us in their extension of the B14 trial. The data that's been presented up to this point from the United Kingdom regarding prolonged tamoxifen therapy has been interesting but not convincing enough to change the standard of care from five years to more than five years. So when I interviewed Richard Pito, he said, here's the way I put it together. I realized that, you know, we maybe don't have definitive data, but here's the way I see the tamoxifen story. I think that in a patient with an ER-positive tumor, in general, keeping tamoxifen going beyond five years will reduce the recurrence rate an additional 15%. Hmm. Well, if it's a relative reduction of 15%, in a woman whose residual risk of recurrence is so small, which it often is at five years, and and coupling with that, the short-term aggravations of taking tamoxifen for patients with the long-term risks of the more sinister medical problems, I would still be inherently reluctant to continue the therapy beyond five years. Agree or disagree, in general, if it's a patient with a node-positive tumor, the risk of relapse between years 5 and 10 after 5 years of tamoxifen is about 20%. I probably would have guessed a little lower. I remember Dr. Hortobaji making a presentation of the natural history of breast cancer recurrences after 5 years, several years ago. And the number I took away from it was it hovered somewhere between 10 and 20%. It certainly could be as high as 20% in patients with the highest risk, patients with the highest number of lymph nodes. But it is a substantial risk, and it is for that reason that I think extending the patient's therapy is appropriate, but I wouldn't necessarily extend it with tamoxifen. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think it's really an academic discussion yeah. at this point. Nobody even thinks about doing it. And I think even, in, as you said, patient with continued menstruation, people are going to think about what you just talked about, which is ovarian suppression or ablation. Just to finish out in terms of the premenopausal patient, anything new in terms of fertility And young women, you've done a lot of work in that area. So I think, you know, we got involved in this 
a long time ago when we started looking at suppressing ovarian function during chemotherapy. And what we found and what we presented in a very small pilot study was that if you gave chemotherapy to young women and gave them concurrent therapy with GnRH analogs, you, of course, created a temporary state of amenorrhea from which they recovered more than 90% of the time. And this has been shown over and over again in larger studies done in Europe. The question it didn't ask was what it would do to the patient's fertility. So as we continued this pilot project and we followed these patients, we saw some disturbing trends. We saw a trend in which patients who had estrogen receptor positive tumors who got this approach to treatment using chemotherapy with ovarian suppression were disinclined to take their tamoxifen therapy because of their yearning to become pregnant. And the highest number of relapses we saw in our pilot project was in patients who were non-compliant with tamoxifen. We also saw a relative difficulty in conception in our patients. So after the pilot project was closed, the hope was, of course, that a cooperative group would take on the project, and SWOG has done that, and they're still working on the randomized trial where patients either do or don't get ovarian suppression during chemotherapy. Until that trial is completed, we are no longer doing this. We're no longer offering it to patients as part of a fertility strategy. I think the most convincing evidence, the approach to fertility preservation, is actually with ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval for fertilization prior to the commencement of chemotherapy. Dr. Octay at Cornell has done, I think, a yeoman's job of trying to do this in a systematic way, showing that it can be done, showing that it can be done efficiently, it can be done without great compromise or delay in the patient's commencement of chemotherapy. What exactly is done? Not being a fertility specialist, it's always been hard for me to follow exactly what it is they do, but they basically use HCG and, in his case, letrozole as an ovarian stimulant which is given in time to the patient's menstrual cycle after the diagnosis of breast cancer and before the commencement of chemotherapy. And then the stimulated ovary provides eggs for retrieval, and then they're fertilized and kept cryopreserved for later use. And he has shown, at least in a non-randomized study that he published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, that this is a feasible procedure in most patients and that the rates of recurrence in those patients two years after diagnosis is no higher if they underwent ovarian stimulation versus if they chose not to. So for the moment, if a patient that we see is very interested in preserving fertility, they are referred to a reproductive endocrinologist slash gynecologist to do ovarian stimulation and egg retrieval. We no longer routinely recommend ovarian suppression during chemotherapy as the sole means of preserving fertility. So I want to get your take on the issue of bisphosphonates. You know, last June at the ASCO meeting, we had really a stunning presentation of the Austrian trial, and then that was subsequently published in the New England Journal. I don't know that there's any new data out right now, but can you talk about what they looked at, what they saw, and where we are right now? So the Austrian maybe CSG trial... It was a trial that tried to answer several questions at the same time. They looked at premenopausal women with hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. Those were their criteria for entry. The patients could not have received chemotherapy. In fact, a very small percentage of the patients did as part of a neoadjuvant treatment strategy. But in effect, more than 95% of the patients received no chemotherapy. They were assigned at random to one of two treatments. One was to get ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen. 
The other was to get ovarian suppression plus anastrozole. This, of course, you know, leads one to acknowledge the fact that ovarian suppression and hormone therapy in combination is considered a standard of care in many parts of Western Europe. The patients were then also randomized to receive or not receive twice-yearly infusions of zoledronate. And they initially presented their data several years ago looking at bone density outcomes and showed some disturbing findings, which were that if you do ovarian suppression in a young woman and you give her either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, there is a fairly precipitous loss of bone density. And that loss of bone density was much greater in women getting the aromatase inhibitor. They also showed that they could offset that loss of bone density by using zoledronate. That was fascinating information. It was encouraging to know that the consequences of that therapy could be offset by something relatively simple, but it also applied a therapy that most of us weren't accustomed to, which is intentional ovarian suppression in a premenopausal woman. The most recent presentation, of course, had to do with its effect on the natural history of breast cancer. They first showed that there was no difference in recurrence rates when tamoxifen and anastrozole were compared, but statistically speaking, the study was not really well-powered to show a difference. And then they showed that the risk of recurrence went down in women who got zoledronate versus those who didn't, which I thought was statistically very convincing, although it was a very small difference. The problem I have is there are really two, one of which, and the greatest of which, is you know a significant number of those women in that study were node-positive patients for whom the standard of care in the minds of most of us includes a course of chemotherapy, which in that study they did not get. So if one factors in a truth, which is that the risk of recurrence does go down, if you give chemotherapy to estrogen receptor positive premenopausal women, then one must ask whether the application of chemotherapy might have rendered the difference in outcome statistically unrecognizable, or whether it would have overshadowed any benefits of zoledronate. And I think, although it's wonderful to see that the bisphosphonates may have an impact on the natural history of breast cancer, it's difficult to translate that into clinical practice since those patients were not being treated in accordance with our own standards of care. That is, they didn't get chemotherapy. So because of that one red flag, we have not yet been applying bisphosphonates as a routine part of postoperative treatment in our premenopausal women. Now, when those data were first presented... The thinking was that there were going to be other trials, and there was one in particular, I think, called the Azure trial that would report soon, and we'd get some data one way or the other, but now it's coming up on a year later, and there's nothing out there. Well, I think those of us who follow this very closely and who would like to see something come of this, because you know, to the minds of most of us, the infusion of zoledronate two times a year to a group of patients is not a big deal. It's not overly expensive. It's not overly toxic. There are no known major health consequences to doing so, would very much like to incorporate this into the way we treat patients. But we're all waiting for the Azure study to be presented, which is more of a real-life examination of bisphosphonates in a broader age range in patients who were also treated in accordance with what we're accustomed to. Those patients will have received, under more circumstances, the same chemotherapy and hormonal therapy that we might have given them which is a big difference between the Azure trial and the Austrian study. It's interesting, though. You know, you talk about it being a relatively modest difference or improvement, but from a relative risk reduction, I mean, they are claiming more than a third fewer recurrences. Now, the problem is that 
I guess the overall recurrence rate in the trial was only 6%. So in those patients, it was a small absolute difference, but the relative reduction was pretty significant. No, I think there's no doubt that there is probably something to this. I would just very much like to see it played out in a set of circumstances, which is much more consistent with how we treat early stage breast cancer. It's ironic that there is no question that the bisphosphonates have some inherent antineoplastic activity. 20 years ago, some of the first phase two trials of pimidronate were done in metastatic breast cancer patients in Philadelphia. And there were a few, not many, but a few demonstrations of responses in metastatic breast cancer in patients who got nothing more than pimidronate. And That's interesting. Non-bone responses? Yeah. There were visceral responses, radiologically demonstrable responses in these trials of pimidronate way back in the days before pimidronate was even considered for the treatment of preserving bone integrity. There were not many responses. This is very obscure data that's buried somewhere in the recesses of the medical literature. But in theory and in practice, there is bound to be some inherent antineoplastic activity of the bisphosphonates. It may not be very much, but if it produces a relative reduction in recurrence risks of one-third, it's going to be very hard to not do it in clinical practice. You mentioned the modest downside, but I mean, one issue that I think at least patients maybe are going to read about is the issue of osteonecrosis of the jaw, or ONJ. I actually interviewed Michael Nant, who presented that data, and they actually didn't have any cases in that particular study. What do we know in general about ONJ and bisphosphonates? I think ONJ is probably one of the more elusive diagnoses that we make. I think that the frequency with which it is diagnosed is very much proportional to the frequency with which it is sought. I think it is something that patients need to be forewarned as a possibility but it is an extraordinarily remote possibility. In their large adjuvant study, they saw no cases. In the ZOFAST trial, which is a trial of bisphosphonates in a postmenopausal age group, the number of cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw or of the mandible was very, very small. So I think, number one, the public perception of the risk is exaggerated. Number two, I think the real risk is probably almost to the point of being trivial. And I think third... A lot of the risk may be dependent on the quantity of the bisphosphonate given. And if we're giving 4 milligrams of zolitronate twice yearly, I have to believe this is not going to be a major impediment to applying this in clinical practice. I think the other thing for surgeons who do happen to be interested in this and find that compelling is the option of participating in the current SWOG study that randomizes patients between three bisphosphonates, but everybody gets it and it's part of this study, and I think they get it paid for, and it's pretty open eligibility to almost any patient who's getting any kind of adjuvant therapy, even hormones. Do you put patients on that study? We are not participating in that study currently. However, I think I'll acknowledge that that study will have potential usefulness if it becomes apparent based on the four other clinical trials which randomize patients to get or not get bisphosphonates. And if it's established that bisphosphonate therapy is appropriate, and the SWOG study will be instrumental in helping us decide which of the bisphosphonates is most appropriate, if there is any difference between them. I want to ask you about a couple of papers that you've been involved with, looking at Oncotype in your institution and how it's used. If you can talk a little bit about that and also sort of update us again at your place, how things have evolved. It's, you know, when you think back to the initial presentations by Soon Paik, and it's not that long ago, actually, and then how things have kind of gone up and down and sideways, what happened at Penn? Well, I think we were relatively fast adopters of the Oncotype assay at Penn 
when Soon Pig presented his information for the first time in December of 2003, and then in 2004, when they, I thought, made a very clear demonstration that that test could predict the value of chemotherapy in a low-risk patient. We were, I think, collectively looking for ways to justify withholding chemotherapy in low-risk patients. I think our prevailing philosophy is that we were over-treating a lot of people, that we would love to have been able to identify a group of patients for whom chemotherapy was not appropriate and for whom it was very appropriate. And the Oncotype test, I thought, gave reasonably convincing evidence that it was usable. And so in early 2005, we began to apply the test in patients who met the same criteria for entry almost as they would have if they had been enrolled in the B20 trial. So ER ER-positive, node-negative patients, all ages, all comers under those circumstances. And what we did was we did this for a couple of years and then decided to examine our practice habits. We wanted to see how often we were doing it, whether we were abiding by the test results, if we were following the guidelines as set forth by the NSABP, and just to see if our practice habits changed. So all we did was looked at our medical records from all of our consultations with node-negative ER-positive women. Our control group was in 2003 when Oncotype wasn't available. Our study group was in 2005-2006, which were the first two calendar years of its routine use. And I think the observation we made was, number one, the likelihood of doing or not doing this test was somewhat predictable. Patients who are older tended to do it a little less often. Patients with very large cancers tended to do it less often. But we also found that we were pretty good at abiding by the results of the test. Patients with scores that were below 18 didn't get chemotherapy over 85% of the time. Conversely, patients with scores over the number 31 got chemotherapy about 90% of the time. And of course, the intermediate group got chemotherapy about 40% of the time. But the principal finding was that the overall application of chemotherapy in those patients went down by half. And that is consistent with the oncotype insofar as about half of the patients will have a score below 18. And if you abide by the test, then your application of chemotherapy should go down by half. And it did. And probably a high, high fraction of these patients were getting chemo before the starter. What fraction was it? It approached 70%. Wow, and that so, includes older people, comorbidities, everything. Yes, and of course, the application of chemotherapy was proportionally greater in patients who were younger. Older patients got chemotherapy quite often, but they certainly got it a lot less often when we started doing the oncotype. Now, our use of the oncotype has not evolved that much beyond that point. You know, we're now confronted with the same issues as everyone else. Should it be applied in all node-positive women? Should it be applied in any node-positive women? We've been very hesitant to use it thus far in node-positive patients. We've done it on a case-by-case basis where it is perceived that the risks of chemotherapy might be inappropriate. And it provides us, we think, with some justification for withholding chemotherapy from certain node-positive women where there are untenable risks. But the number of patients in whom we have actually done that is relatively small. It's a huge philosophical leap to make for medical oncologists, and I think we're not entirely equipped to make that leap at the moment. And one thing I think people immediately, when they kind of think about, because there have been other institutions that have tried looking at these kinds of things, and 
There's often been a focus on just what you said, the number of women who are able to avoid chemo. But, you know, I wonder how many patients there are, and I don't know whether you looked at this in the study, because the other group that really interests me are people who got chemo who maybe wouldn't have normally gotten chemo. Mm -hmm. Smaller tumor, and patient doesn't want chemo, you know, and then, boom, you get this high recurrence score. Did you quantify how often that happens? Because now you're talking about avoiding recurrence. Yes. We didn't look specifically at that issue. What we found was that if the score came back high, we gave chemotherapy and allowed the Oncotype test to basically trump all other factors. So if a patient came in with a 7-millimeter cancer that was particularly a young woman who had, let's say, a relatively low percentage of estrogen receptor staining, and her score reflected that, which put her in a high-risk group or the greater-than-31 group, we gave them chemotherapy. Would we have done that in the era before Oncotype testing? Probably not. Interesting. What about the Mamaprint assay that is available in the United States? Do you all use it at all? We don't use the Mamaprint assay at all. There are a couple of issues with it. The first is really a logistical one. Since it is done on fresh tissue, it requires the presumptive participation of the surgeon in obtaining the test. The other is that it is a great... There's no question that it's a prognostic factor with some legs. It has the ability to predict the risk of recurrence. The problem is that it hasn't been shown to predict the risk of recurrence based on a particular set of treatments. We thus see the mammoprint as a fascinating prognostic factor, but until the mammoprint is validated as a predictive factor, we will not apply it in clinical practice. And that is information that is yet to come. What about the use of the archetype in thinking about neoadjuvant therapy. I haven't heard too many people talk about it, but it seemed, and I guess there was like one small study that looked at that, but it seems like maybe it would be something that would be useful. I think if you're going to give a patient neoadjuvant therapy, you have to establish before you begin exactly what your entire therapeutic strategy is going to be. And I do think the Oncotype test has potential in that area However, the number of patients that we see that are seeking neoadjuvant therapy for an express surgical purpose is not very many. So, for example, if a 70-year-old woman with a 4-centimeter cancer is desirous of breast conservation and wants some form of preoperative therapy to achieve that, if the surgeon does an appropriate node procedure before he proceeds any further and establishes that the patient is node negative, then I personally think it is entirely justified to use an Oncotype test to determine whether chemotherapy should be part of that woman's neoadjuvant treatment strategy. The number of times we've confronted that situation is relatively few. So, but the thinking then is if the tumor has a low recurrence score, A, maybe not use neoadjuvant chemo, and B, maybe think about neoadjuvant hormones? If your surgical goal is to achieve breast conservation status, then the presumption is that you can achieve that as readily with hormonal therapy alone as you could with chemotherapy. And I would have no philosophical problem approaching a patient that way, providing it was under those very specific circumstances. Although I guess we have to say that other than that one Italian study, we don't have a whole lot of data on this. No, I think the data is insufficient to imply that this should be applied in routine clinical practice. Having said all of this, if the same 70-year-old woman came to us with a 4-centimeter ER-positive cancer and had a negative sentinel node, 
and desired breast conservation, I'm sure our own institution would be very much divided on whether to apply the Oncotype test or not. I personally wouldn't have an issue with doing it or with doing the Oncotype test and then giving the patient preoperative hormonal therapy to achieve her surgical goal. I don't think that we can assume that her ultimate outcome will be compromised by doing that.